Welcome to The Build Up. I'm Kirk Pinhop. And I'm Arielle Cass. We cover real estate for Cranes Detroit Business. Together, we're launching this podcast to give you the inside scoop on commercial real estate. We'll be bringing in experts from across the industry to offer their perspectives on the biggest issues they face today and what challenges they expect for the future. This is The Build Up. Today, we're joined by the family behind Friedman Real Estate. Headquartered in Farmington Hills, the firm handles brokerage, property management, construction and design services in Metro Detroit and around the country. It's all led by patriarch David Friedman, the co-founder, president and CEO, whose company's portfolio includes more than 15 million square feet of commercial space and more than 13,000 multifamily units. We're also joined by his son, Jared, the senior managing director. Together, they are responsible for properties like the Galleria Office Center Complex in Southfield, Oakland Technology Park in Auburn Hills, North Troy Corporate Park, and the Arboretum Office Park in Farmington Hills, among others. David and Jared, thank you for being here with us on The Build Up. Thank you. David, you were one of the uh, sort of behind the scenes uh, architects of uh, Gilbert's move to Detroit. Um, Did the vision that was laid out 10 or 12 years ago, sort of line up with, with what you see now? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it did. Um, I think in the initial planning phases, uh, I don't think it was as large as we all thought it was going to be, but I think as the economy took off and, and Quicken loans grew, uh, and the success of the projects grew, it just became larger and larger. Um, but, uh, it's certainly, uh, where it is today compared to where it was is, is a, huge difference and uh it's been such a uh, it's been such a great thing for the city of detroit and I, I think all the state of michigan so it was great to be involved with that project and we're still involved with the bedrock team working on a lot of other projects currently okay can you talk about those at all are you, you have ndas or stuff like that yeah, we're working currently with the uh industrial property that we sold in uh, the sake piece yeah that's a big initiative that they took to to grow in the industrial world um, you know, and they constantly are looking to, you know, continue to grow and evolve and change and look at different projects from whether it's new acquisition standpoint on buildings we're evaluating for them um, or with them and, um, you know, really trying to reinvent. So they're continuing to grow, um, you know, and invest more and more in the city, which is which is obviously great um, as well. David, I understand you have a lucky penny in your office. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of luck that it's brought you and, and what the story is behind it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, it's uh, in 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 our, in our world. You know, luck is really important. You got to get lucky. You got to be at the right place at the right time. But you also need a little luck on almost everything you do in the real estate business because there's so many things you don't control. So I'm a big believer in luck. As a matter of fact, my first dog's name was Lucky. So um, and uh, that was many years ago. So uh, you know, you you can't be the smartest guy in the world. You got to work hard and you got to have luck. And I'd rather be lucky than smart. That's for sure to get some of these projects over the finish line. And uh, a fun fact about my dad that I'll share. Uh, we were in New York last week walking down the street, and every time he sees a penny, uh, he will bend down and pick it up every time. <laughs> <laughs> did that last week, in fact. So still is collecting those lucky pennies. Yeah. I love that. So, Jared, do you have a lucky object, too? I, I, I do not. He's got plenty of lucky pennies for us all. So uh, <laughs> he collects them a lot. Did you add to your net worth pretty considerably while you were in New York by doing that? No, but I, I added to my net worth at Jack's Car Wash because every time I'm at Jack's Car Wash, which I was a partner in, which we recently sold, um, I would look on the floor and I'd look at the ground and I'd look at all the change and all the pennies and all the nickels and dimes were on the, on the ground. So we always pick those up. 
speaking of luck, <laughs> um, if there's any sector that you need luck in right now, it's probably office, given sort of the what's happened with the pandemic. Um, what sort of trends are you guys seeing with things like lease renewals or I guess sort of lack thereof, um, uh, rent decreases, um, landlord concessions? What's sort of the state of play right now for you guys? That's an interesting question. Um, so, you know, I will tell you that um, it's all over the board and every day, every tenant has a different outlook on, on what's going on with office space. Um, we've had, we've had some wins, we've had some losses, but overall, um, the market, the good news about the Michigan market is not overbuilt. Like in some sectors, like in Houston or some of the, in Chicago, some of the other markets that we're in. And, uh, the, a lot of tenants are still looking, for, still want a home. They still want a corporate headquarters, and they're trying to figure out what size they need and what exactly it should look like. So we've had a couple. We just recently did a deal where um, Procter and Associates was in a single story, fifty-five thousand square foot building. In the middle of COVID, they couldn't renew their lease for short term, so they decided to make a big commitment and move into our North Troy. Uh, project and took 68,000 square feet. So they actually expanded, grew, and moved into the building, um, which was great. And um, we also recently did a couple other deals with, uh, we did one deal with um, Toyota um, that was in a building down the street and they wanted to downsize. They wanted a more efficient uh, layout. And so they took a smaller space. One of our buildings about 20,000 square feet. So we're we're, we're seeing a lot of movement going around. Donor was another example during COVID where they were in 126,000 square foot building and they downsized into Galleria for 68,000 square feet and wanted a new, vibrant, new uh, look and uh, uh, space, which worked out great. So we are seeing tenants moving around. We don't, we're not seeing tenants just shut their doors and call it quits. Um, and they're trying to move into uh, newer spaces and... Um, Jared always says it's like, you know, an empty nester who's moving out of a house and they move into a new house, but they still need bedrooms for their kids and grandchildren to come come back. And so we're still we're having some successes, some wins, and we're some tenants are moving into and consolidating to one location if they have two locations. So it's interesting. The other thing I should point out is that our automotive uh, sector is doing quite well. A lot of new requirements out there with automotive suppliers for electric vehicles and electronics. And so we're making deals with automotive suppliers, uh, you know, for electric vehicles and new facilities. So that's kind of promising for us. You, you were saying that you don't think that the office market is overbuilt like in Houston. But I mean, I've, since I've been doing this job for 10 years or so, I've never seen Southfield or Troy or Farmington Hills be um, under like a 20% vacancy rate. Are you saying that the, the region as a whole is not overbuilt or are you saying like these individual sub, sub markets are not overbuilt as well? There's just not a lot of speculative office space that gets built in Michigan. It hasn't happened since 1998, 2000. Mm -hmm. So any building that's really built is built for a use, whether it's Huntington Bank downtown, uh, you know, CompuWare got expanded. I mean, I mean, maybe the Hudson's building is being built. But when you really think about it, how many developers are specking buildings, you know, for office space? And yeah, there's always vacancy that comes up, comes up, but there's not a, there's not new construction, new cranes on office buildings all throughout Metro Detroit. Yeah, some, you, you haven't seen that since the '80s, right? No, no, not not at all. And you go to some of some of our submarkets, like Birmingham is is really stable, and, and Royal Oak is pretty stable. And, um, you know, Northwestern Highway is doing very well. 
And then there's always, you know, because I, I, I because uh, Southfield is such a your largest office market with 18 million square feet, you are, always have some vacancy there. And the same thing with Troy. And I think what's hidden in that high vacancy numbers is a, the obsolescence of a lot of older buildings, right? I mean, if you start looking at some of the product in Southfield, it's 1970s Class C product. Sure, it's vacant, but is there really a viable use for that going forward? And I think because of some of those markets are so large and have such amount of old product in there that it really does skew those percentages of, of, of what's stabilized. Um, but, you know, we're not still a stabilized office market, that's for sure. And our vacancy rate has ticked up quite a bit over the last 24 months and the amount of sublease space in the market. So, sure. In the office market, you know, like what's going on is you know, we're, we're now working on several projects that uh, are in the pipeline for conversions of office buildings to other uses. And so that'll be interesting going forward if we can repurpose a building that used to be a corporate headquarters into some other use. Southgate's a perfect example. We spent a lot of time on that with Alex Began and sold him that asset, and he's converting that into apartments. I think you're going to see more of that. Um, there's a few projects we are working on right now. They're not ready for public announcement, but shortly, hopefully by July or August, we'll be able to make a couple announcements. And another really good example of that was a deal we did last year with uh, Sun Communities. They took a single story office building on 11 Mile, and we essentially um, took that building, which had an 18 foot clear single story office building. We raised part of the roof to 30 foot clear and some communities ended up buying the building and putting in a, a high end glamping research and development center. Right. Is there uh, you know, corporate research and development facility? And so those are the type of uses that we're seeing right now where they're not traditional office uses. There are R&D centers. They're going to be multifamily uses and, and different types of uses than just traditional you know, offices and cubes. Name me another podcast where someone refers to a glamping R&D center. <laughs> uh, maybe if you're interviewing Marcus Limonis uh, about his RV parks, is probably the only one I can imagine. Or go interview uh, Gary Shipman. Yeah, he'll <laughs> talk about, about it all day. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get him on as soon as we'll he's get him on. Yeah. yeah. So you have turned around some seriously distressed properties, particularly in the Southfield and Troy markets. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the more memorable ones and, and what made them memorable? You know, we've been doing distress turnaround work for 30 years. I mean, we've in my career, you know, when I first got into my career in 1983, by 1990, we had the SNL crisis, so we we're always dealing with foreclosed properties. I think that the um, the uh, most interesting was probably North Troy. It was a very large uh, portfolio of office buildings that we managed, that we actually leased for several years that got worse and worse because EDS was in the building and they downsized and it got that note got sold to a major institution, and that institution we had called on, and we ended up buying it, and with a joint venture partner of ours, and we had about a million two hundred thousand square feet. I think at that time there was eight hundred thousand square feet of vacancy there, and we took that property and we sold some of the pieces, we renovated some of the pieces, and we released it and did a whole number of uh, transactions there, and um, that was I'll tell you in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. The office market was a whole lot worse than it is today. Uh, that's for sure. I mean, every building in North Troy was vacant. Tenants, Chrysler was in buildings and different ad agencies, and people were terminating leases left and right in bankruptcies. And even downtown Detroit was horrible, even a lot worse. Certainly not even close to what it is today. Um, even if you know when you look at some of like the Renaissance Center and some of those buildings, but. Um, we were able to turn that thing around and um, reposition those assets, and that worked out really well for, for everybody. 
Uh, Jared, um, we've spoken recently, and, and you you said that your sort of distressed asset and receivership portfolio is primarily outside of Michigan. And um, I want to go back on that and see: do, do you expect that to change in the coming years, and particularly as as you know, a, a lot of these office tenants begin to sort of roll over? Um, and and if so, why? And if not, why not? For us as a whole, we're doing a lot of receivership work in places like Chicago, Wisconsin, Indianapolis the Ohio's and Houston right now. Really, Chicago is probably one of the worst cities in the country right now. They had a major tax issue there that's causing a lot of distress, uh, a lot of potential receivership work. Same with Houston, the oil crisis. Even though oil's up, uh, their market's been pretty distressed over the last couple of years. So we're definitely seeing a lot of business there. And while I mentioned to you earlier, we don't have a lot of receivership business in Michigan currently, I I do see an uptick in that um, over the next coming years. Uh, there will be a lot of office buildings that are already vacant and the tenants are there paying leases or the tenants will eventually leave those buildings. And when that debt comes due, will probably result in, in several bankruptcies or several potential receiverships. I still think, though, on the whole, that Michigan is still relatively pretty healthy from where it's historically been and even to other places around the country. You know, my dad mentioned earlier, we haven't seen an overconstruction of office space. We haven't even seen a lot of multifamily construction or industrial construction or even new retail. So Michigan is actually doing pretty well. And with the electric vehicles and autonomous vehicle industry firing on all cylinders, it really is providing, you know, growth of internal combustion engine businesses because those are profitable. The electric vehicles are really, you know, a big wave of the future. So we're seeing a lot of these automotive companies make investments. So I think Michigan's overall pretty healthy. And, you know, there will be buildings here or there, but you know, for the first time in many, many years, and I mean, I'm a young guy, but I just, I just don't think we've seen Michigan this healthy in a potential, you know, recessionary environment on the horizon um, in many, many years. I think a lot of that has to do with um, most of the assets that um, were purchased was, were purchased between 2012 and maybe 2016, 17, and so a lot of those went back to the the uh, special servicers and were bought by either users or developers, and they were bought pretty cheap, and they had cheap debt, and so and they were renovated. So a lot of guys that have office buildings from years back, their basis are a lot lower, their debt's a lot lower, so they can withstand, you know, occupancy rates of, you know, 30 40% if they have to, and still cash flow and make the numbers work. Their tax bases are low, et cetera. So, you know, in our portfolio, we have some properties that we don't even have debt on some of these assets, these office buildings that might be vacated. So the carrying cost is next to nothing, and they're in good shape to begin with. So I think that the owners of the buildings that bought buildings, you know, five, six years ago, bought them right, bought them cheap, fixed them up, and did well. There was not a lot of high-end sales, especially in the office market, where people's debt is, is way above what the current value is. So I think that they'll weather the storm. Jared, you mentioned the construction um, being a, a little bit low in the multifamily market. Can you talk a little bit more about the state of the multifamily market? So the state of the multifamily market in Michigan uh, is doing really, really well. Our occupancies across the board are probably the highest that they've ever been. We have about a 97% occupancy rate um, in our market. We've seen year-over-year -year rent growth at 8%, which is really, really strong for Michigan. and you know, because of the good, the strong inflationary environment, because of the health of the automotive industry and the health of our economy here in Michigan, you know, we're seeing a lot of demand translate into the multifamily market. Um, we've seen over the last couple of years, a lot of institutional players 
or out of state buyers really come in and, you know, make purchases of multifamily assets and invest capital dollars and improve them and raise rents, which a lot of people for many years thought wasn't realistic. But really, uh, a lot of those out-of-state investors have proved people wrong and really been able to drive rents and do pretty well with those assets. Um, so overall, it's really good. We have started to see an uptick in construction, but really you only see on average about two to 3,000 multifamily units built a year, which is pretty insignificant in our, our 204,000 uh, units that we have in Metro Detroit. Um, you know, it's about one to 2% of supply every year. So because we don't add a lot and because our economy is doing so well, it's made a really good environment for multifamily owners. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with the rise in interest rates. Um, that's really going to put a pause and has put a pause on the investment sale market here, um, with interest rates rising and cap rates being so low. So I think you'll start to see a slowdown there, but our portfolio and the, the 13,000 units that we manage for Friedman communities. You know, we're showing really good signs of rental rate growth and occupancies across the board here in Michigan. So it's it's still pretty healthy. Would you expect construction to pick up at all with that kind of growth? We have seen a lot of planned construction. I am uncertain with how much of that construction actually gets done. And really, this has a lot to do with inflation. You know, the positive effects of inflation for the multifamily market is strong rent growth. The negative is when you go to build a new building, it's very expensive. And so a lot of the construction numbers that we're starting to see in the multifamily world on a price per unit basis are very high and make it very risky for developers to go vertical with a high construction cost and really try and pro forma high rental rate number. So I think there will be some deals that get built because we have some pretty good developers here. But I also think there are a lot of deals that will be put on pause with, with the high construction numbers coming in. Then don't forget you sprinkle in the increase in interest rates, and there you got to, you know, go from a good project to a bad project. So, mm -hmm. so in addition to the two of you, the management team includes um, Jared, your brother Jordan, who's a senior manager with the company, and that makes about a third of the leadership team part of the family. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of having the family work together and what some of the challenges are? I think that um, working with your family is. Um, one of the most exciting things that you can do, um, but also one of the most challenging things you can do as well. Um, you know, working with family creates a very high um, level of trust, right? It creates a very fun environment, a very dynamic environment. Um, I also find myself working at Monday morning at 8 a.m. all the way up till Saturday night at 10 p.m., right? Because it really, there's no barriers because, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time with our family, my dad, my brother, um, and, and the rest of us. So we're always thinking and, and, and um, you know, trying to, to move forward. Um, but it's great. You know, I mean, we all think relatively alike. We're all on the same page a lot of times, um, which is also really fun. But with that being said, as you mentioned, we're not the only part of the leadership team. We have a majority of our leadership team is is not family members. Now, I feel like a lot of them are family members because yeah. many of them have been here for so long. Um, so really, I mean, I, I, it, it, as, as you know, entrepreneurial as a company as we are, I really do feel like we're also a family company as well, too. And I really enjoy not just the family that I work with, but also everyone else here. We have a great team, dynamic team, an entrepreneurial team, a group that's been here for a very, very long time. So, um, you know, there's we, we joke that there's many people with the last name Friedman here, uh, more more than just the three of us. And that's really how I feel that we are as a company. So that that's probably the most fun part to me is working with an organization that that you really trust and and whether they're actually related to you or not. 
um, you know, really creates a fun environment and feels like we're one. You know, when you think about it, we're probably 25% of the total team. So we're a small piece of the equation. Um, so I think that's interesting. And, and most of the people that work here, uh, today we have over 450 employees. Um, they're smarter, they're better, they're more entrepreneurial. They're all these things that, that, that really you know, drives us every day. So I give so much kudos to the, the rest of the team. How do you guys manage each other's uh, strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think we all know what we're good at and what we're not, and I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, it, it it definitely takes a while to find your sweet spot in your groove, right? Um, but you know, for example, I just look at me and my brother. For example, we we might be related and we might kind of look alike, but outside of that, we have you know, very little in common. Right. Um, um, but the one thing that we do have in common is we have a lot of respect for each other and we enjoy each other's company and we like each other a lot. And, you know, he's really good at certain parts of the business. He's a dynamic leasing guy. You'll see him around town. Um, Jordan Friedman is out and about, right. And, and myself, you know, not so much a little bit and I have some other, um, strengths that, that he doesn't. And he has some strengths that, that are my weaknesses. And so really recognizing that's important. Um, you know, especially with the people you work with. And so I think we really try and each find our own lanes and really figure out how we can help, you know, the business as a unit. But, um, you know, we're, 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 we're aligned and all moving in the same direction, you know, for the entire organization, right? We all, we're, we can move quickly, we can adapt, we can change, we're very open. Um, there's not a lot of barriers here. And I think that's really how you, you, you work with great people is just figuring out, you know, how, how to move together and, and really how to all, you know, move the boat in the same direction. You know, it's funny because Jordan's got a twin, <laughs> and uh, you wouldn't. They're so opposite; it's unbelievable. He works in New York City at a hedge fund, and they're just total opposites. And I think it's a good formula. If if everybody was the same and had the same interests and the same, you know, they have all the same goals, mutual respect, you know, keeping the brand, you know, in in a stellar uh, a stellar relationships are important so they they understand you know what's important to to us and to the family and to the company and um and uh but everybody's a little bit different which is kind of good any designs on bringing the twin into the into the family business as well we're trying but he's pushing back <laughs> he's by far the smartest friedman so we're yeah. uh we're definitely out there he's got a good thing going in new york so we'll see he does I'm curious, Jared, you said that your workday sometimes starts at 8 a.m. on a Monday and continues until Saturday at like a 10 p.m. And I'm curious, like, what's the what's the weirdest or like most irritating time that work has infringed for you or David, like infringed on, you know, a family gathering or a family event? Big, big celebration. We started off on the weekends, though. We try. But the, the, the two people I feel the worst for are um, are my mom. And my wife, because sometimes when uh, myself, my dad, my two brothers are all at a dinner table, uh, we, we tend to dominate the conversation quite a bit about what's going on and what we see in the world and what we're doing. Um, and, and, and they try to chime in. Although I will say that uh, my mom, surprisingly, if you point to any office building in town, can absolutely tell you the, the average rental rate of the building. And probably the top three largest tenants. Um, so, so it just kind of runs runs the gamut. I'm getting my nine year old to that point. By the way, perfect for sure. David, did you always expect your kids to join you in business? 
Um, you know, when I first got in business, probably not. But as you know, I got older. You know, I was always under the impression that at least one of them would want to be part of it, and uh, that kept me uh, going for a while. You know, my part, my my partner Stan Finsilver was with us for many many years. Who retired. And the goal was to bring the boys in and keep the legacy going and see if they could, you know, take what we built and, and uh, take it to a different level, which they're doing, which is great for us, for the family and for them and for the people that work for us. Do you have plans to retire soon? Have you figured out what a succession plan is yet? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm getting there. I'm definitely slowing down a little bit. I still like to be involved. I like to be challenged. But um I feel probably now more so than ever that I can step away, not be here as often, uh, and do some other things that, that are good for uh, me, the family, and the business. Um, you know, the most important thing is, is, as I said to my boys, you know, if, if, if our team respects you and likes you and likes working for you, then we've accomplished what we set out to accomplish. And I really do think that that's really where we're at right now. It took a, it took a while but I wanted to make sure that our team that, that we count on every day to help us keep this engine moving um, had respect and, and, and liked you guys to be part of it. And I think it, I think that's really we've really been able to accomplish that. So it gives me more reason to be able to do other things and, and try to uh, let the let the boys and the team run the ship and let me back down a little bit. David, you know, you've been in this business for a long time. I'm curious what you think your your biggest failure in the business was and how you overcame it or how you addressed it. I can't really think about one major failure that was uh, was uh, that devastating. I think we've been pretty lucky over the last 30 years. You know, could I have done more in, in, in other markets or, you know, other sectors or had a larger fund and, and, and done more real uh, real estate stuff. Sure. Do I regret it? No. Was it a, fa was it a failure that I didn't do that? Probably not. Um, we're pretty satisfied with where we're at, where we're at today and, and uh, the position we're in. Um, but there's been a ton of challenges and failures all every year, every day, there's a failure or a challenge we got to deal with. It's like ongoing. It's never been easy. I mean, especially, you know, in Michigan, when I think about it, if I would have started my career in some other market like New York or Silicon Valley or some other where, uh, some other area, would my would my career have been different? Sure, it would have been different. It would have been dra dramatically different, you know, because there was a lot of challenges in Michigan. I mean, our economy here in the, in the, in the uh, automotive sector and the bankruptcy of Detroit and the bankruptcy of all the automotives and all that stuff and the lack of growth has been very challenging for for us. And, but that was a decision I made to stay here. I really didn't have any choice but to go anywhere else. And, and I'm happy that I have because I think it's been, it's been good. And so, and it's been challenging and uh, successful. Did you ever think about going somewhere else? Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> Every bad cycle. I said, what am I doing? I got to get out of here. It was usually in December and January and February. When I <laughs> so what made you stay anyway? Well, I was raising a family. All my family was here. I didn't have the resources to go. I was, you know, I was really here to stay. I didn't have those options. I never had those options. Are you glad now that you did stay? Yeah, I love Michigan. It's the best place in the world to live, except in December and January and February. Well, 
David and Jared, thank you very much for making some time to chat with us. Uh, it's been an insightful conversation, and uh, I know we'll be in touch as the uh, days and weeks progress. But thank you again for uh, for being us here today. Thank you very yeah, much, thank you guys. Take care.